Hello everyone and welcome to the Talk Music Podcast, where we chat everything and anything related to the world of music and occasionally focus on topics a little bit unrelated. My name is Scott Kelly. I am a drummer turned comedy singer-songwriter and apparently now a podcaster. You're going to hear me chat to many different people, but more often than not, it will be fellow musicians having conversations about their careers and lives within arguably the greatest art form in the world. And you get this for free each and every week on scottcowie.com, on Stitcher Radio, and now on iTunes. So please rate, review, subscribe, tell a friend, let them know what's going on over here. But for now, enjoy the show. Guest this week on the podcast, guitar player extraordinaire Stevie Salas. This man has played with everyone from Mick Jagger to Rod Stewart. His stories are amazing. The story on how he met Miles Davis is absolutely priceless and he says it right here on the podcast. It's all coming up. It's going to be a good one. Before we get to the interview with Stevie, I've literally walked into the studio just now. Ron, our producer, is here. Okay, and I've, I've basically just said, and this is the God's honest truth, just hit record because we want to get this started straight away. Yeah. Bunch of different things been happening. You're going to be co-hosting this one, as you know, because yeah. we're kind of doing the co-host thing just now. Uh-huh. A big thank you to Tanya O'Callaghan for sorting this interview with Stevie Salas. Um, I texted her about 10 minutes ago and asked her if she wanted to do a bit of co-hosting. Um, we would get her over the phone and, you know, she could say about how she plays bass with Stevie sometimes and they're good friends yeah. and everything yeah. but um, I kind of kiboshed the idea because I wanted to talk to you so right. Tanya sorry if you could get back to me soon and say that you want to co-host because you've, you've been replaced by Ron and uh, shame on you for not texting me back within 10 minutes anyway right you noticed last week and if you notice in scottkiwi.com there's now a donate button on yeah. the podcast yeah. right um, so I haven't even checked the, the, the account yet to see if anybody has willingly donated their money to help contribute to the podcast. So I want to get put this out there. Before MD's thinking that Ron and I are just sitting collecting cash and thinking this is brilliant, we're now profiting from this podcast, that's not going to be the case because I'm going to tell everybody my idea as to how we should go invest this money. And this isn't a joke, this is totally legit. Mm-hmm. Here's what I'm thinking. We, the, I think the next natural step, right, and this is us genuinely having a business meeting where we're on the podcast, so you, all you guys are privy to this. I was thinking of getting, um, we do a live, not a live podcast, but we, we record a podcast with an audience, right. like get a, a band, interview a band, and we can have like a Q&A session with, with a crowd. So uh, there's a couple of bands that I've got in mind that will be playing Glasgow soon. Can't name them because I don't want to name them, then it doesn't happen, then we all look foolish. Mm-hmm. But what we do is, wherever they're playing, say for for example, the band are playing the Royal Concert Hall in Glasgow, we could hire out a small hall within the concert hall, have Mm -hmm. a Q&A prior to them playing. Mm -hmm. You'll be there, I'll be there. I'll be here heading the Q&A, so to speak. We ask the band questions, we take questions from the audience that pays to come along. Bada bing, bada boom, it's a good little podcast. I think that's the next natural step, and and, and honestly, Ron is hearing this for the first time. I really am. Right, what do you think? I think it's a really good idea. Right, okay. And I don't see the many stumbling blocks, but um, the reason why we're asking to donate, because I think it will contribute towards that, we need to hire out the hall. Uh Um, And so the money will contribute to hiring out the hall and uh, prices for tickets and stuff like that. Um, So we would cover our costs and anything that we do potentially make, we would need to discuss this with the artist or the band or the venue in question or the promotion company, whoever else is involved. 
Um, and any money that we do make, we can give to charity. Mm. Right? So Teenage Cancer Trust, I think, is an yeah. obvious, obvious one because we've done a lot of work with them in the past. They're great. It's close to home and all that. Um, so that's what I'm thinking. Right? Um, and if anybody listening has got any ideas how we could make that idea happen or any ideas for bands or artists that we could potentially interview and you guys could come along be part of the Q&A thing um, and I think you know look, give us this, give us those ideas give yeah. us those ideas yes that makes sense yeah perfect sense tweet them to at Music or email me I've got a public email please use it wisely skowie music at gmail.com or Facebook, whatever you want to do, just get in contact with me, man. And, you know, we'll take this idea to the moon. Like, not figuratively. Figuratively, not literally. Anyway. Technically we could, though, because you don't know people from NASA. Uh, well, yes, so we I'm well con- I am well connected on the NASA front, so that maybe will be next year. But this year, a hall within Glasgow, Edinburgh, somewhere in Scotland. If anybody's playing and if anybody wants to hear me interview a band and wants to get in on the act by asking them questions and being part of the Q&A podcast live thing. And listen, this might just be a grand idea that doesn't end up happening or it might be happening in a month from now, it might be six months, a year from now. I'm just throwing the idea out there, ladies and gentlemen, and potentially we can make it happen. But go to scottcowie.com, click on that donate button, be rest assured that that isn't paying for my swimming pool um, outside my flat, right? Um, That is paying to better this podcast. Because it was just a bit weary that people log on, they see this donate button and think that we've sold out and we're just making cash and we're, we're laughing at all you people that are poor when we're rich. Believe me, that's not the case. No. Um, we are looking to better this podcast. Okay? And I'm not getting on here being all defensive. If, if you do think we're making money and we're all laughing at you, I, I, part of me doesn't really care. But genuinely, we want to hire at a hall, we want to interview a cool band and we want you guys there. And that's the truth. Okay, so um, do you get any ideas to make it better or make that thing happen? Or maybe, uh, you know, I've got the foundations of a decent idea. You guys could come in and add the salt and pepper, the strawberry, whatever way you want to look at it, right? Ron, thoughts? We like this? Yeah, I'm really liking this idea. We're liking this idea. Let's Fantastic. make it happen. We're going to make it happen, with, make it happen with the help of you guys, right? Any ideas, anything you could do uh, any, to contribute to the thing happening, do it. Stevie Salas, brilliant guitar player, brilliant guy. His stories are amazing. This podcast is brilliant. We're on a roll right now. If you noticed online, everybody's been tweeting, everybody's been retweeting, everybody's been sharing, everybody's been doing all that mother jazz on social media because we have had a run of great podcasts, including the likes of Chris Jericho, George Clinton, Julian Lennon, Stuart Copeland, Larry Graham, Everybody that's been on the podcast, anybody else, Newton Faulkner, the list goes on and on and on. We're on a roll. We are on fire. I've had people texting me saying the podcast is on fire. That's why I thought of that sentence there, because somebody actually texted me the other day. (laughs) So there you go. We're on fire, ladies and gentlemen. But we're not going to rest on our laurels. We're going to hire at Hall. We're going to go to the moon. Let's do this. We're going to do it. Anyway, enough of us babbling. Stevie Salas is brilliant. He's a great guitar player. He's got tons of great stories, as I said at the top of the podcast. Let's get right down to it. It's going to be a good one. Okay, I am back on the Talk Music Podcast with Stevie Salas. How are you today, Stevie? I'm good. I'm a little beat up. Um, 
I got home from South America from playing Lollapalooza and, and went straight into South by Southwest here in Austin, Texas. I mean, literally a 24 hour flight. And then that night I was out uh, with Robert Trujillo at his film premiere and, and it's just nonstop. So I'm a little bit beat up right now, but I'm okay. I'll survive. Robert Trujillo, what's going on with him? If you guys got a project on the go just now? Yeah, um, Robert's had a project since he was in uh, suicidal. Um, he did this project, uh, a really crazy, weird project called Mass Mental. And um, there was no guitar player on it. It's, um, it's him and this Cameroonian bass player that's really a, like the most insane musician. He's uh, a young guy from Cameroon named uh, Armand Sabaleco. And Sabaleco played with uh, Herbie Hancock and Stanley Clark and uh, um, Seal. And, you know, he did the Simon and Garfunkel reunion. I mean, some super musical, musical stuff. But he rocks, right? But he's, you know, he's a freak out, freak out. Like, just a phenomenal musician. So him and Robert did this crazy, weird, like, heavy metal, funk, punk, jazz fusion trip out record with Brooks Wackerman on drums and... Um, a few other guests here and there. And then they, they kind of like would do shows when they could. And then of course, you know, Robert joined Metallica. And uh, last summer, Robert asked me to, if I would come play with them in Germany, they were going to do a mass mental set. And they wanted to do a, uh, a big medley of some vintage early Black Sabbath and asked me if I'd come play. And I was like, of course. I was like, I love those records. So we started to rock, and then I ended up doing a bunch of the weird music with him, too, and he freaked out. And Robert and I go way back. We, we knew each other when we were starving musicians in L.A. Matter of fact, when I was getting the color code, the first initial color code recording contract was going to be with Electro Records. They were originally paying for all my demos when I was in London. And um, I asked Robert then in 1987, 88, to join Color Code and be the bass player, but he was really busy with his band and he thought they were going to get signed and it didn't work out. So him and I go way back. Uh, so now we just got asked to play, you know, in South America at Lollapalooza. So we flew down there and we, and we uh, did that, which was really awesome. Sounds really cool, man. Now you've, you're, you're renowned for having some amazing stories. Last week on the podcast, our guest was George Clinton, uh, which was really? absolutely brilliant getting to chat with him. Now tell us your George Clinton story. Well, I mean, there would probably be no me without George Clinton. Did you even, did you tell him you were going to talk to me this week? We didn't know at that point in time when we organized uh, it. Because uh, really he tells the story better than me. Um, George Clinton discovered me. I was homeless sleeping on the couch in a, in a recording studio in Los Angeles called Baby O Studios. And um, whenever like musicians would come in i was like trying to make it right it was 1985 i just came up from san diego left high school and moved to la and i'd say like i remember saying to gene simmons like hey you know i'm the biggest kiss fan and I, if you ever need a guitar player he was in there producing vinnie vincent's invasion and you know and i mean vinnie vincent would spit in my face and fucking gene simmons would tell me to fuck off and and you know but i'd still like hey you know my name's stevie solace you ever need a guitar player i said to everybody and uh no, he was Gene Simmons was producing Keel, and uh, and Dana Str Dana Strum was producing Vinnie Vincent. Vinnie Vincent was psycho, and I just remember being this young kid watching all this madness, you know, trying to find a break. And one night, George Clinton came in the studio, and I said the same thing to him. Hey, you know, I was friends with this really trip out guy named Zio, who was one of the guys that kind of started a 
uh, was an early house music guy, actually. He was working with Paul Oakenfeld. And, uh, and Zeal used to use me on guitar for some weird dance, techno, freak-out, dive-bomb, funk guitar. Weird, you know, I was doing weird shit on guitar that a lot of people weren't doing, I guess. And um, so I said, hey, I know Zio. And George Clinton goes, really? He goes, okay. And I go, if you need some guitar, I'm here. And he goes, yeah, okay, whatever. And no big deal. But then about, he had a guy doing a guitar session that day. Uh, named Jack Sherman, and Jack was then the guitar player for the Red Hot Chili Peppers. He was the before Huel, and so Jack was in there doing something. And I guess they weren't getting what they wanted. What it was was, I heard what Jack was playing. What Jack was doing was Jack was saying, "I am a huge fan of George Clinton, and so therefore I'm going to come in here and play the kind of shit that I learned from listening to George Clinton and Funkadelic Records." And what George Clinton was looking for was somebody to give him something that he never heard before, because that's George's M.O., right? George wants to keep pushing the boundaries. Let me go somewhere I've never been, not somewhere I've already been and dominated in, right? Mm. Um, so Jack was giving him this really cool, funky line or whatever. And I just went in there. And I had a wang bar. And wang bars were kind of new back in the, in the mid-'80s. And uh, I was a Steve Stevens fanatic. And I don't think George Clinton knew who Steve Stevens was. And I went in there and just started fucking freaking out. Wow, wow. Fucking nuts. And uh, George freaked out. And George George just fell in love with me. And George started letting me hang out every day. And I was in the studio every day. He would take me to film premieres. And uh, everybody then thought I was George Clinton's guitar player. And I thought I was George's guitar player that was in town from, from Detroit. You know, and uh, so then I started getting calls for sessions. I got a call from Bernadette Peters from from uh, uh, Climax. And I said, hey, I'm double scale. And she's like, well, yeah, that's not a problem. You know, you're George Clinton's guitar player. Of course you are. And realistically, I'd never made a dime. The first paycheck I ever got was $212 or something like that from Capitol Records from my first George Clinton session. And uh, People just thought I was, a, I, I played it like I was his guitar player and I was a big shot and people started hiring me and I met Bootsy Collins and then Don Was and I ended up producing Was Not Was with Don and playing on a lot of that with Don and um, it just sort of snowballed. So yeah, without George Clinton, who knows if we'd even be talking right now. I could be playing on the Holiday Inn or some shit. <laughs> right, you mentioned Bootsy Collins. When was the first time you met Bootsy? Well, George had been telling Bootsy about me. And um, Bootsy came into town, and I was still staying at Baby O Studios, where I was sleeping on the couch. And Bootsy, and we'd be hanging around the session, and Bootsy just kind of took a liking to me. Uh, and he and he took me under his wing, and he started writing songs with me. And 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 I never knew this till just a few years ago. Um, we were shooting an, a, an exhibit. I was working on uh, about Native American musicians for the Smithsonian. And Bootsy Collins was on it talking. And he said something that I, all these years, 25 years later, something or however long it's been, I never knew. But he said he came to L.A. then sort of burned out and searching. He was searching for some new inspiration. And he says when he met me, he says, I, he said, I had this spark and energy that reminded him of himself when he was a kid playing with James Brown. And, and he, he said, Stevie didn't know it, but I was sponging off him 
and his, absorbing his energy while he was sponging off me, absorbing all my knowledge and all my, and it was like a working, and to this day, I mean, Bootsy Combs, I just produced a new uh, pop band called Jack and Jack, who's just two little pop kids. Like, I never do pop music, but it's like they wanted an old school funk track. And I use Matt Sherrod, who plays with Crowded House and Beck on drums. And I use Bootsy Collins on bass. I mean, still to this day, he's like my big brother. And we work together and we play together. And we, and when we see each other, it's like, you know, he calls me, he calls me little brother Stevie. It's like I'm his guy. And, you know, and he, he's on a lot of my records. And I'm on a lot of his records. And we had a band, you know, on Ryko Disc called Hardware. Yeah, it's just a weird relationship where he just took me under his wing. And out of the eight million guys that he, that would die to play with him. He just chose me and I'm just lucky, you know. Amazing. Okay, so at one point you're in the studio recording and Miles Davis walks in. Tell us tell us about this. This is brilliant. How do you know about that? That's wild. Yeah, well what happened was I was in New York making the first color code album with Bill Laswell. And uh and during the sessions, because Laswell is this really eclectic person that people can't put a, their finger on, he gets a lot of weird people always wanting to hang around him and talk to him. You know, he's, Laswell's an interesting guy and incredibly talented and funny too, if, once you get to know him. And uh, so, you know, we'd be in the studio and one day, you know, I, Vanity from Vanity 6 is sitting at the board and I'm like, with her fucking ass booming. I remember she came in to, 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 to meet Laswell because Bernie Worrell was playing on the session with us. And she, Bernie said, you got to meet Laswell. You know, and she came in in these skin-tight pants. And, and Winston Watson, our, our drummer then, got, got so frazzled by her ass that he couldn't play a track. And we had to cancel the whole session that day. You know, and then one day Joey Ramone comes in uh, and hangs out. And, and I start talking to Joey. And uh, he goes, yeah, I'm going to CBGB's. And I'm like, I've never been to CBGB's. He goes, you want to come? And so I go outside and, you know, Joey Ramone has a limo. And in the limo, I get, I get in. And the three other Ramones are in the limo. And I go to CBGB's with all four Ramones. Well, you know, Joey Ramone was up there to talk to Laswell about Laswell doing something. Because Laswell just produced a Ramones album. You know, so then one night, um, the, the, a lot of the musicians, the Herbie Hancocks and these guys are all hearing about me, I guess from Laswell and Bootsy and stuff. I kind of had a buzz going then because Was Not Was was a hit and Bill and Ted and all this stuff. And uh, a guy called Ronald Shannon Jackson came in the studio who was this really eclectic, odd jazz drummer, freak out guy who would play the drums and read poetry or some shit. It was crazy weird shit. And, uh, and he had a thing called the Decoding Society and he had been using Vernon Reed and Vernon now was... Living Color was huge, so Vernon was too busy, and maybe he thought I would be a good replacement. Or they were also talking about a problem, a project with Tony Williams on drums, and maybe that's what Miles was there for. I don't know, but because but, uh, I did get calls from Tony Williams as well about doing this project, and then Tony passed away. Um, and I'm such an idiot. I I didn't know who um, I didn't know who Tony Williams was. I didn't know who Ronald Shannon Jackson was. I mean, maybe that's part of the beauty. Because I, since I didn't know George Clinton and I didn't know Bootsy and I didn't know, I mean, I knew who they were, but I, I didn't come in and and try to try to be who I thought they wanted me to be. I just didn't know what to do other than kind of be my myself, you know. And uh, so Ronald Shannon Jackson came in and was talking to me, 
And the next thing I know, Miles Davis was just hanging out. And I'm thinking to myself, holy shit, you know, and he's vibey as a motherfucker. I mean, we'd be in the studio. By this time, we weren't at Sorcerer anymore. We were at Platinum Island. And I was doing overdubs, and we were mixing at the same time. And, and Miles just stood there all night, like, quietly, not fucking saying a word. So I didn't say a word. I didn't even say hello to him. He was in my session. I didn't go up to him, hey, brother, what's up, bad, bad. I just didn't fucking say nothing. I mean, in fact, I didn't even look at him, really. I was afraid of him. Because I'd heard horror stories, you know, how he just fucking laid people out. I mean, just fucked people up with, you know, with his tongue, just nailing them, embarrassing them for life. So I was just like, at least I was smart enough to know to not say nothing. So I didn't say fuck all to him all night. And he was there all night. I mean, he was hanging out. It was two in the morning, man, and he was still hanging out. He didn't say a word to me. He just listened to my music. It was Color Code, the first Color Code album. I don't know if you ever heard that, but he was just listening to what was going on there, and it was fucking his head up, I guess. Or he liked it, or he was like, wow, this is, like, I don't know what's going on here. And um, at the, I left the room, and I was in the office watching television uh, while they were doing something in the studio. And he comes walking out of the studio and walks up to me, because he's leaving. And he walks up to me. And he says, and he's got this big guy with him, like a bodyguard or driver or something. And I swear to God, I look at him and I said, oh, you're leaving? And he says to me, he goes, and I fucking couldn't understand a word he said, not a fucking word. And I was, I didn't know what to do. And I wasn't going to say, excuse me, pardon me, what was that? I just nodded my head and I tapped on my chest like, thanks. And I was like, good to see you. Thanks for coming by like that. And he nodded his head and he walked off. And to this day, it's driving me fucking nuts. I have no idea what he said to me. <laughs> and he didn't just say a couple words. It wasn't like, eh, blah, 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 blah. it was like, he went on and he was like, blah, blah, blah. Oh, blah. I mean, he was going and I could not understand one fucking word. <laughs> And, I mean, even still to this day, it's driving me mad right now just thinking about it. <laughs> Amazing, right? So, how did the uh, how did the Rod Stewart gig come about? Rod Stewart, I did before Color Code. Right. Um, what happened was, I I was uh, showcasing all over with Color Code. I had a real buzz going as a guitarist and as a producer, really. Um, I had just co-produced a track with with Was Not Was, and then Walk the Dinosaur was a huge hit in, in the UK. So I was flying over to the UK with Don and David and the Was Not Was guys, and we were doing Top of the Pops, and I was doing all the all that shit. And um, I did Bill and Ted, and that was a big buzz. And uh, I produced this girl rock band called the Pandoras, and and I was just becoming a real buzzword in los angeles you know really like i was hot and all the a&r guys called me and i played on an eddie money record you know which was a big deal to me at the time because eddie money was a big star matter of fact the first time i ever got triple scale for a session was with eddie money and uh, bill graham had signed me uh as an artist which is a big deal because bill graham he was a legendary manager and um <clears throat> about that time it was um i believe it was october 1987 andy taylor you know, had quit Duran Duran and had a big hit with a song called Take It Easy uh, from a film soundtrack, I think it was. And he worked on it, was working on an album with Steve Jones from the Sex Pistols. 
And um, I was a staff producer then for David Kirschenbaum. And I was producing uh, uh, these film soundtracks for the film Big Shots, uh, for a film called uh, Action Jackson. Um, I was, and I would do all these rap rock records because uh, David Kirschenbaum didn't know anything about rap. And a lot of people in L.A., believe it or not, in 1987, didn't know that much about rap music. And I was really into Run DMC and Eddie Martinez. And I was just doing Eddie Martinez shit, really, uh, on L.A. rap records, just rocking, you know, doing all this big heavy grooves with big drum beats and uh, for these film soundtracks. And so I was kind of buzzed. I had a buzz going. And uh, a, a guy named Mark Levy, I believe his name was, used to know me in San Diego when I was in my band, This Kids. And he came by and saw me and says, you know, I'm working with, with a guy named Randy Phillips, who was a huge manager. Randy's still huge in the music business. He, he was the guy who, who he, he ran, a, uh, what's the company that just owns all the O2 arenas? And, you know, I forget. But So Randy was managing uh, Andy Taylor with Arnold Stiefel, who was also Rod Stewart's manager. They called me up and said, we want to meet Andy. They he needs a guitar player and they're going to do a big world tour with psychedelic furs and all this shit. I'm like, fuck yeah. And I really liked what Andy was doing because it really rocked. It was, it was a raw rock record and I wanted to play arenas at the same time. I got called from Thomas Dolby who I really loved and respected. Um, and ironically I got asked to audition for Andy and Tom, Tom Thomas on the same day. And so I auditioned for Thomas and I loved him, and he loved me. And uh, it was cool. We were musically just getting into some crazy shit with Thomas Dolby. He's like, it's not a whole nother level. Hmm. And then I went and met with Andy Taylor, the record plan. And I loved him, and he loved me. But ran, his shit was just like, it was just heavy. It was like playing punk rock, rock, heavy metal or something, right? I don't know if you listen to that album Thunder, but it was just like heavy riffs, heavy power chords. And I love that too, right? So I decided Thomas was going to start a band called the Tiny Toy People, and he was going to tour nightclubs for a year and then record an album because he always realized that his song sounded better at the end of a tour, um, which is true. Usually, you know, by the time you get done touring, you're like, God, I wish I could record this song now. We play it so much better. Um, and Andy was going on tour with the Psychedelic First right away playing. And the first gig was the L.A. Forum. And I'm like, I'm playing the Forum. Are you kidding me? That's my dream, man. I want to play the forum. So I decided to join Andy's band. And a couple weeks into it, Andy fired me. I was just too crazy for him or too wild. Or, yeah, I don't know what his problem was, but uh, he fucking fired me, man. And I was just like, are you kidding me? I'd never been fired from anything. And it devastated me. Um, Thomas had already hired another guitar player. So that ship had moved, sailed on. And I got a phone call from Zio to come back to England and work on some things. So I said, fuck, fuck LA and fuck everybody. I'm only going to work on my own projects. I'm not doing anybody else's shit. And so um, I told Zio, I don't want to go to London. I'm not coming back to London. I'm just going to work on my own shit because I never want this to happen to me again. And um, so Mitchell Krasnow, who was the VP of A&R at Electra Records in, um, in uh, London, wanted me really badly to play on this record that Zio was working on. So he said, if you come and do this, come to Amsterdam and work on this record, I will give you uh, $5,000 extra just for you for free to go work on your music on your time off and I'll book a studio for you. So I was at Visa Lord Studio in Amsterdam. 
outside Amsterdam in Hilversum. And I had a little room that I could use for me to write songs and work on my own music. And then I'd go up to the big studio and I'd work with them on their shit. And, you know, Def Leppard was in there finishing the Hysteria records. So I was hanging out with those guys. And and um, that worked out good. And then I, while I was there, I got a phone call to come home from Randy Phillips' office because they wanted me to meet Rod Stewart because they knew that, that Andy had fired me. They thought that was a big mistake and they thought there was something special with me going on and they wanted me to meet Rod Stewart. And as it turns out, I didn't know this, but because Rod had just did this new record with the Power Station and Tony Thompson and Bernard Edwards and, and that was right in my wheelhouse, this funk, rock sort of riffs and Rod was reinventing himself and they wanted some new energy. And so they asked me to fly out to L.A. and audition for Rod. And I'm just a massive Rod Stewart fan. At least I really, really was, you know, from the faces and, and um, infatuation and some of that Jeff Beck stuff. And and, um, and he was a superstar. So I didn't hesitate on that. I went right out and I knew that that was something I wanted to do because I had a goal in my life to play with Rod Stewart, Mick Jagger and David Bowie. Those were my three things I wanted to do in, with my life. So I flew out and auditioned for Rod because of Andy Taylor, really. And uh, and Rod loved me, said I had the gig. And the band was the Power Station, uh, which was my dream, with Eddie Martinez on guitar, the guy who did you know, Run DMC and Robert Palmer, Addicted to the Love, who I was actually ripping off. I was always, they used to call me the young Eddie Martinez. So once we'd started to play, they realized that I couldn't play slide guitar with a shit. And I couldn't play acoustic guitar. I mean, I never played acoustic guitar, dude. I was a rock and roll, punk rock, skateboarder, surfer, you know? So they fired me. They didn't fire me. They just told me it wasn't going to work out, right? And I was devastated again. But something told me that I was going to, they were going to call me back. And they ended up hiring Jeff Golub. And a couple of weeks before the tour, um, I got a phone call saying, can you come down to Audible Studios? Rod would like to see you again. And what had happened was it didn't work out with Tony Thompson. He wasn't playing the old faces stuff with the touch they needed. So Tony decided to leave. Uh, they brought back Tony Brock from the babies. Eddie Martinez then left and uh, they brought, uh, they brought back uh, uh, and they had Jeff Golub, the great Jeff Golub on guitar. Eddie went back to Robert Palmer to go do the, the Robert Palmer's huge tour. And there it was for me. I walked in and I fucking just nailed it, right? What Eddie was doing, kind of. Not as good, of course. But, uh, I, and, and it turned out what I'd found out later was Rod was looking for some edge. He was really into Steve Stevens. And what Steve Stevens and Billy Idol had these huge hits. It was 1988. And Rod was like, we need, I need this. That's why he got rid of all the old band. You know, he loved uh, Cregan and Robin Lemizier and all those guys. They were his family. But he they were giving him everything that he had already been doing for, for 10 years or something, eight years. He needed something completely different. And I was completely different, trust me. I mean, I played those songs all fucking wrong for sure. And But I put some kind of wavo on him, some muscle on him, and some things to him with the wang bars and harmonics and, you know, distorted martial amps. And, and Rod loved it. And eight days later, I was, I was on a on a sitting in first class on a jet to go play Hiram Bitham football stadium. Just like that. I was Rod's guitar player and, um, and my life changed forever. That's absolutely amazing. Phenomenal. Right. So what was <laughs> from Rod Stewart to Mick Jagger? What was it like working with Mick Jagger? Well, by the time I worked with Mick, I was already a seasoned veteran, you know, it was 10 years after Rod. 
Uh, but I'd already met Mick a bunch of times because I'd worked a lot with Bernard Fowler. And Bernard has been in the Stones, I don't know, 25 years or something. So I used to hang out with Keith and, and Mick and Woody and you know things like that. So I, was, I wasn't uncomfortable around Mick at all. Uh, and I was a professional. I mean, I was an ass-kicking professional. By nineteen, by two thousand, I, I, I was, I was, I, I felt like I could do anything with anybody in the world, and I never could be over my head. I was really confident. I had a long run with solo albums, you know, selling a couple million albums, playing with the biggest people in the world, and I did not feel afraid or insecure. Um, I got a call. I was at Virgin Records. I had a development deal at Virgin Records with Tony Berg, where I could, I could develop singers and artists and if we if virgin liked them they would give me money and if we liked them we would sign them or move on you know whatever and i was in the office one day and mick jagger was signed to virgin <clears throat> and Gemma corfield don was his wife said stevie i just saw your name on a short list of guitar players for mick jagger and i'm like what i go who tell him to call me and that night i got a phone call um come down to a studio i forget what studio somewhere in hollywood and see mick larabee i think it was he wants to talk to you. And I'm like, fucking hell. So I went down there at 7 o'clock at night, and I walked in, and um, Doyle Bramhall was there. You know, Doyle, who plays in Archangels and played with Clapton. And uh, you know, Doyle's like this famous Austin, Texas guitar player. Super cool. Um, super good, too. Um, Rusty Anderson was there, who was my favorite guitar player in the world. He used to play with my songwriting partner, Parthalon Huxley. He's been, with, he's been with Paul McCartney now forever. Um... I think uh, there's only, there only like five guys called, and me, and I went in there with Doyle, and we played together in the studio to some mix songs that I'd never heard. Just heard it once, and I started playing it, and um, that was that. And I talked with Mick for a minute, and then uh, the next day I was on my life cycle, riding my life cycle, working out, and the phone rings, and then hello, Stevie, this is Mick Jagger. And I was on my bike, and I couldn't hear him. And, I, and I, I just got off the phone with Jimmy Dunlap, you know, the Jim Dunlap, the guitar pick maker. He's Scottish, you know. Yeah. And he had called me up earlier, fucking, hello, it's Mick. What are you doing, cunt? You know, like, and I'm like, fuck off, Jimmy. I'll call you back. So I thought it was Jimmy calling me back again. I'm like, Jimmy, I'll call you back. I'm fucking working out. And I hung up. Boom, rings again. Stevie, it, it's Mick. No, don't hang up. It's really me, Mick, from last night. And I'm like, holy fuck. So I stopped pedaling my life cycle, and I stopped working out. And, I, and it was Mick Jagger. And he says, yeah, man, I want you to do the gig. And I was just like, fuck, yeah. This was a gig I really needed. I needed a, and I wanted. Um, I, I just needed something new and something exciting and something big. Um, because I was just stale out in myself. I needed some excitement. Some, nothing was exciting me and nothing was, and you know, I was down about it. I was really down. My girlfriend had just passed away, you know, a, a six months earlier, a year earlier, and I, I was just uninspired and down in the dumps. And um, and this is what I needed. I needed the biggest rock star in the world to come and pick me up and uh, and and get me out of the hole I was in um, mentally. And, and, and it did. And so then he started talking to me about guitar players. Okay, we need to hire a next guitar player. So he kind of made me the, he made me the uh, um, co-music director. I was in charge of helping him pick some musicians and figure out what we were doing. And, and uh, it was great because he's like, oh, I auditioned Dave Navarro, but 
you know, he's got the image with the earrings. It's like, oh, it's like a pirate. You know, I'm like, yeah, no, fuck that. No, Dave Navarro. Because uh, David, Dave was cool in James, but David had you know, become like some rock and roll pirate. I don't know what's going on with Dave. It's like, no, Dave Navarro. And then he goes, I like this guy, Rusty. And I go, he's my favorite guitar player in the world. And uh, he goes, but he's with McCartney now. And like, you know, the Beatles and the Stones. And I'm like, okay, 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 I get it. You know, so. And then we liked Doyle, both of us. But Doyle didn't learn any of the songs. Because Doyle, like, Doyle just doesn't give a shit. I think he's Doyle's Doyle's Doyle. He does his thing and he's. He's so badass. But he didn't learn a song, so Mick was concerned because he didn't know any of the songs. He didn't pick them up like that. Like, I had picked them up really quickly, and Doyle didn't because Doyle just doesn't give a shit. He's Doyle Grandma, man. He doesn't need to. You know, Clapton calls him. And uh, so it turns out we start working on this Jagger thing, and, uh, and I was just the guy he would call every day, three times a day, you know, uh, about this or about that. Oh, we need to go. What about this? I'm not sure. You know, and it was, it was awesome. It was just amazing. It was amazing to have Mick Jagger calling me to discuss, talk to me about details and music. And it was like, how did this ever happen to a kid from Carlsbad, San Diego, Oceanside, California, who grew up, you know, skateboarding and surfing and, you know, and how the fuck did this happen? And it was just like, you could have killed me. You should have shot me that year and I would have been done. I was fine. Um, and at that time, actually, after doing Mick Jagger, I felt like I would, other than playing with David Bowie, there's like, I was rich then. I'd already you know, was a millionaire at that time, and um, I just thought, you know, what else? There's nothing else for me other than to play with David Bowie. Um, that was until I lost all my money in the stock market, but not all of it, but a lot of it. So, but at that point in my life, I, you could have shot me in the head, and I would have been. I'm good with this. <laughs> so, so as we're recording this, you're at South by Southwest. What is it you're doing there? You're on a panel. What's happening? You know, I moved to Austin, Texas three years ago. I left my, got rid of my house in the, in the beach in Carlsbad, California, and I got rid of my place in the beach in L.A., really, both of them, um, and completely committed to moving to Austin, Texas, because I have a young son, and um, we wanted him to go to this really cool school here, named the Waldorf School. And so I moved to Austin. I bought a house there. What happened was um, we were up in Canada. I, I produced a lot of television. I produced two TV series, and, I, and I'm making a pretty good movie, a pretty big movie about Native American musicians with PBS, the Public Broadcasting Network, and uh, Super Channel, which is HBO Canada. And, um, and I'm still playing. I'm doing records and you know doing cool stuff. But um, I really got into the television making, and I was working at American Idol for four years. And I... Um, I just thought, you know, I'm going to come to Austin, do something different, surround myself with some different people. And I, so I bought a house next to the school, which ironically was down the street from my, my, my longtime dear friend, Charlie Sexton, who plays with Bob Dylan. And so I had like-minded buddies in my own neighborhood who understand my, me and I understand them because we've chewed the same dirt. You know, we've been in the same battles. And, um, and, and I'm, I'm loving it. So uh, now that I'm in Austin, some people asked me to be on a panel, which I was. Um, this week where um, people booked my panel was weird I did it with you know who Tim Palmer is the British uh, record producer yes. and mixer so Tim lives in Austin and his kid goes to the school and Charlie Sexton lives there and his kid did go to this school and and I mean a lot of people you know go to this kids go to this school live in my neighborhood so Tim and I did these things where people booked 10 minutes spots with you 
and they got to sit with me and talk to me about whatever they wanted. And most of it was managers, like you're, you know, like a woman from Spain who managed a band. And they want uh, young Native American kids. I had a few Indian, American Indian, because I'm American Indian, come out to want to talk to me and um, about their, how do they, you know, people just want to talk to me. Okay, I got this band. I play funk. I don't know how to break out, you know. And I'm like, wow, this is what you're doing. So I did this panel where I sat and people booked up all my 10-minute slots. And it was really fun and it was actually inspiring. And I thought it was going to be a drag, but I really enjoyed it. That's really cool, Stevie. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. We'll need to get you on for a part two. You just sense that that's going to happen. At some stage, we're going to have you on with the guitar, playing some funk riffs. I can see that happening just now. Thanks very much, and best of luck with everything that you've got coming up. Cool, man. Cool, man. If you get attached to Google my new uh, signature series, Framus Guitar. It's a Stevie Solis Idolmaker Framus, and it's pretty badass, and they're starting to sell all over. So lots going on. I'm going to do exactly that, son. I'm going to do exactly that. Stevie Salas on the Talk Music Podcast. Big thank you to Stevie Salas for joining us this week on the podcast. Don't go anywhere. Do not go anywhere. Don't think the interviews will overstay for the podcast. The remaining few minutes isn't going to be as good because we've got some blockbuster announcements to make. You heard us talking about the top, talking at the top of the podcast about this amazing idea we've got. If you're one of these scumbags that skip the skip the intro just to get to the, the interview, then you can go back and listen to it because it's great stuff. Anyway, I'll not repeat it because I want to be um, nice to you people that have listened all the way through and you don't have to hear all the nonsense twice, as in my idea twice. You know what I'm saying, Ron? I know what this is making Ron. sense, isn't it? Ron, our producer, big thanks to Ron because each and every week he edits this podcast. I send him the stuff. I'll give you, give you guys a little bit of the inner workings of the podcast. I'll record it, send it to Ron. Ron edits it, produces it, adds reverb. What, what, I mean, what the hell do you do? Sometimes I take a lot of background noise out so it's a lot clearer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll, I'll mix it together, put the jingles in between, um, all the different wee parts, anything that you're needing changed or fixed. Yes, yeah, are my so, mistakes. So it's probably about two hours work for every podcast. Yes, yeah. and it's about around about the same for me because I've got to do all the research, got to you know ask the people if they want to come on. Some people approach me. We've been getting a lot recently. This thing's grown by the week. Remember and subscribe to iTunes, uh, Stitcher Radio, all that jazz. Next week, can I, I'm going to announce this just now, right? Yeah. Rual Medon, one of my favourite singer songwriters, um, is going to be on the podcast next week. Uh, we don't have a co-host yet. Um, big thank you to Tony Etherson who co-hosted the George Clinton one last week. Yeah, she, she was, was really good. She was really good. We should get her back on. We should. Actually, I'm going to phone her. Let's just phone her. Okay. We'll phone her. We'll ask her to come on next week and co-host. There's a lot of, if you notice, there's a lot of business being done on this week's podcast. So we're genuinely phoning Tony just now. Well, let's hear Tony if yeah, I put it up here. Hello? Tony, it's Scott. Good. Listen, um, you're. I, uh, I hope you don't mind, but we're we're recording our podcast live. I hope that's cool. So don't say the f word or anything else. Oh, right, okay. Right, okay. Right. So, um, I tell you what it is. Um, I'm just calling to ask you if you want to come on next week's podcast and do a bit of co-hosting because we're interviewing a guy called Rual Midon. No problem, right, you can come on and because we've got this new thing called the Love Column, you probably would have caught the episode with Chris Jericho you did because you told me to listen to it um, and we did the yeah, lo- yeah. we did the Love Column thing, um, so it's, I you know Chris Jericho and the Love Column, that was really funny man 
Right, cool. Um, well, Tony's going to come on next week. I hope you guys can hear Tony because we're recording over the phone. I'm just holding my iPhone up to the, the, the mic. Um, so next week it's confirmed. Tony Etherson yeah. will be uh, co-hosting uh, the podcast with Real Madon and giving a lot of love advice along the way. And she'll be telling us about her upcoming gigs and stuff like that. So, Tony, thanks very much for the invite. Uh, sorry, thanks very much for accepting the invite, I should say. And we'll see you next week. And I'm going to—I'll call you back, but I'm going to hang up on you just now if, you, if that's okay. Of course, man. Thanks, right. thanks for calling. No worries. Bye-bye. Bye. Tony's dead nice, and You just yeah. phone him and say I'm recording live in my podcast and she doesn't even mind. Um, I would have been like, how dare you call me up and record this? But, you know, she just takes it all in her stride. Uh, next week, Ral Madon, Tony will be co-hosting with a love thing. You know, it's all happening. And we've got some other announcements that I'm not allowed to say yet. I'll tell you a little bit about it, but a lot of it hasn't been confirmed yet. Sure. Big thanks to Stevie Salas. Thanks for Tanya. Thanks to Tanya Callahan once again. Click on that donate button in scottkibbe.com because you're going to help us build this podcast to get to the moon, both literally and figuratively. scottkibbe.com, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, iTunes, The Lot. Check out Ron North, follow him on Twitter. That's a producer that does all the editing, that adds the reverb, takes out the background noises, does all that shizzle. The banners that you see on my website, that's all due to Ron. Imagine the swan is gliding along, right? I am the swan, Ron is the mental legs underneath it that you don't see and that you don't appreciate. Well, now that you do appreciate because the legs are an important part of the fucking swan, right? Ladies and gentlemen, thanks very much for listening. Stevie Salas, Tanya Callahan, Tony Etherson, Ron North, scottkimmy.com. Any final words? It's going to be a good one next Yay! Week.